Welcome to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.vlchurch.tv. Ready for the word? I this is one of my favorite things to study. Uh, for those of you that are new, my name is Pastor Joey. I want to say welcome. We believe everyone matters to God, and so you matter. And it is not a coincidence that you're here today. I believe God has brought you here because He has something special for you. And and I'm so thankful that you chose to spend some time with us. And I pray that you'll come back and continue to join in what God is doing. He's doing some pretty spectacular things here among our people. Um, Just this uh, past week, we went, uh, four of us from the leadership team went to a a leadership conference and we're just filled and just have just this passion for what God has birthed in us, a vision for what we see him doing. And and so I'm so excited that uh, you all are part of that journey with us. Um, I want to encourage you just to piggyback off of what Chris was saying. I want to encourage you to come to our prayer and worship night. It's going to be here on May 6th, uh, beginning at 6 o'clock, where we're going to gather with other believers from around the city. Uh, A few other churches are going to be joining with us. It'll be a spectacular time of just worshiping the Lord, getting alone in His presence, praying with one another, for one another, uh, declaring the Word of God over our city, over our nation, and just just going before the Lord. I think uh, that will be one of many Uh, times like this. I believe that God has uh, just put on us to be kind of the center of revival in this city. That to to birth a heart of prayer, cultivate a heart of prayer and revival in the city of Clio and the surrounding areas. And I know you definitely won't want to miss that. And there are plenty of areas to serve. If uh, if you don't normally serve on a Sunday morning, but you want to get involved, uh, there is some opportunities to serve. So please register at the Connection Center. um, And that would be awesome for us. Uh, And uh, I just uh, thank you, thankful for all those who will be able to help us for that event. Um, today we're continuing in our journey through the scripture. We're calling this the Great Romance. We started in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and we're working our way through, really, with an effort to fall in love with Jesus all over again. We live in a very self and selfie centered culture. And even our religious participation, our Christianity, gets very self-focused, and I think one of the reasons why it's not as impactful in lives of many, why many turn away and walk away from the faith, is because they really never understood the purpose, and that is to have a relationship with Almighty God through trusting in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. A relationship that will transform you if you believe in the Son of God. And in the book of Revelation, there's a church, a letter is written by Christ through John to a church. And this this letter haunts me when I think about it because in this letter to Ephesus, it is one of the most prominent churches of the area in in ancient Turkey. Uh, During the time the Bible was being written, these early Christians, and Jesus says to this church, look, you've done a lot of amazing things. You have a lot to be proud of, but there's one thing you're missing. You lost your first love. And if you don't go back and find it and do the things you did at first, I'm going to remove your candlestick from the place among the churches. And what he's saying is, if you forget your first love, love for God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, this light, the presence and power of the Spirit, the very thing that makes a difference in your life, that's going to go away. And I will no longer be with you. And beloved, that scares me to death. Because there is nothing greater than the presence of God in your life and in your church. That's why we're here. We want to be a spirit-filled church driven by love. That's the heart of what we're doing. And so I felt led of God about a year ago now to go back and rediscover the greatest romance story ever told the story of how God is cultivating a people for himself and his son, Jesus, is pursuing his bride. Which, if you're a follower of Christ, that's you and me. His people. That he wants to pour his love over for all eternity. Such a powerful thing. So before we get into the book of Numbers today and continue in this journey, uh, picking up where we left off, 
where the nation of Israel has left Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. They've been in the desert now for a year. They're, they're now into their second year. They were almost in the promised land, and they got cold feet, and they got turned away because they wouldn't honor God. Now we're in that place where God is beginning to reroute them through the wilderness where they will wander for 40 years until the last unbeliever passes away and they're ready to actually follow God in faith. That's where we are in the story. But before we get into the message today, I just want to pray. And this is a prayer that was uh, prayed over us and, and taught to us at our leadership conference that is so very simple, but I think it's very profound. And so I want to pray this over us this morning before we get into the word. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for, for your time and your attention. God, thank you for your heart. I thank you, God, that there is not a person in this room today that is outside of your love, that before you even created the world, you had them in mind. So, God, I just pray that your presence would descend upon us. As we look and discover Jesus in this story, God, may we also discover your heart for us today and draw us in. God, what was prayed over us this week and what I pray over us together as a church is, Lord, give us eyes to see ears to hear, a mind that understands, and a heart to believe in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. So today we're going to talk, this stuff fascinates me. I love to study this and see uh, what God is revealing through the Old Testament. I know many people, they don't even read the Old Testament. Like, that's a bunch of boring stuff. But that's how you feel. You missed the point. Because when you read the Old Testament through the lens of what God has revealed in the New Testament, it is the most exciting story you will ever read. It's fantastic. It is amazing, especially when you get into prophecy and, and the things God has revealed. But today we're going to talk about really four things. We're going to talk about the staff, the rock, the water, and the serpent. The staff the water, the rock, and the serpent. Again, Israel is now facing really uh, rejection because rather than surrendering and submitting to the Lord, they continued in rebellion and they were blocked from the promised land. And some of them, they decide, well, well we, we, we decide we want to obey now. So I know God said we, we can't get in and we got to wander, but we're, we want to obey now. We want to get the blessing now. They go to try to fight their way into the promised land anyways. God doesn't go with them, and they suffer a miserable defeat. Their tushies were handed to them in battle, and they ran for their lives like dogs with the tail between their legs. They learned a lesson. Then we get to Numbers chapters 16 and 17, where we'll be today. You can turn your Bibles there. The verses will be on the screen or in the YouVersion Bible app if you have your phone there. But in Numbers 16 and 17, after they're blocked from the promised land, after they're defeated because they disobey God again, somebody decides, hey, maybe we should just take over and, and go our own way. Like, God is like, against us now it seems like maybe we'll just be better off by ourselves and so in number 16 beginning in verse 1 it says one day Korah son of Ishar the descendant of Kohath son of Levi again these are the priests these are the ones supposed to be ministering to the people this guy conspires with Dathan and Abiram sons of Eliab and the son of Peleth they're from the tribe of Reuben they incite a rebellion against Moses along with 250 other leaders of the community, all prominent members of the assembly. They're united against Moses and Aaron, and they've said, you've gone too far. The whole community of Israel has been set apart by the Lord. He's with all of us. What right do you have to act as though you are greater than the rest of the Lord's people? They are in rebellion against Moses and Aaron because they think they could do it better. This is the same thing that happened with Aaron and Miriam when they stood against Moses not long before. And God cursed them and they had to repent and go through this thing to be reestablished. You'd think they would learn, but they didn't. They're doing it again. The very same thing. In verses 8 through 11, Moses speaks to Korah. He says, now listen, you Levites. Does it seem insignificant to you that the God of Israel has chosen you from among all the community of Israel to be near him so you can serve in the Lord's tabernacle and stand before the people to minister to them? 
Korah, he has already given this special ministry to you and your fellow Levites. Are you now demanding the priesthood? This is the, this is the high priesthood. The Lord is the one you and your followers are really revolting against. For who is Aaron that you're complaining about him? So again, these are, they're already priests. They're already serving before God. They already have special privileges above the rest of the tribes of Israel, but yet that wasn't enough. They want the leadership of Israel. They want to remove Aaron from his place as high priest and set themselves up in their place, in his place. And what's significant about what Moses says to them in verse 11 of chapter 16, he says, the Lord, somebody say the Lord. The Lord is the one you and your followers are really revolting against. For who is Aaron that you're complaining about him? God chose Moses to lead. God chose Aaron to help him lead. God set the order of the camp. God appointed the tribes to their position. God gave them the word of his expectations, how they were to, uh, to lead the nation of Israel. Each uh, group had their own special function. So what God is really speaking through Moses, what Moses is saying to Korah, he's saying, your effort to depose this man, Aaron, to come against us, really is to say, not that you're having a problem with us, but you're really having a problem with God. You're not really fighting against Moses and Aaron. You're really fighting against God Almighty because God is the one who put them in their place. See, the nature of humanity and this, this fallen nature that we wrestle with because of sin is a continual battle, not with spiritual leaders, not with Christianity as a faith or religion, not even with the Bible itself. I know many people have, have arguments and try to attack the Bible for what it says about different things that speaks to different things in our culture. The real issue isn't with the preacher, the Christian, the religion, or the Bible. The real issue is accepting the lordship of God Almighty over your life. It has nothing to do with the person. It has everything to do with respecting God as God and honoring and submitting to him. If you think about it this way, when we look at the scripture and we see the Bible speaking to culture, we see how God designed human relationships. In the beginning, God created man and woman, and God said man shall leave his father and mother. That means, boys, at some time, you've got to get out your mama's house. And preferably before 40. A man will leave his father and mother. He will cling to his wife, and the two will be one flesh. In layman's terms, that means the two will be intimate. The two will have physical relations. They'll be naked without shame. Anything else introduces shame into the mix because it's outside of God's design. That means no friends with benefits. That means no shacking up before you're married. That means nothing other than heterosexual intimate relationship because that's what God designed. The culture in the world doesn't like that. They look at people, they look at the Bible, they look at Christians, they look at pastors and teachers who stand on the word of God and there's this knee-jerk reaction that says, well, if that's what you think, you're unloving, you're intolerant, you're a bigot, you're a homophobe, you're against transgender you're against all of these things they'll criticize the bible They'll even try to explain away passages of the bible to make it fit into their way of thinking or their 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 view point of view but the true reality is the person really doesn't have an issue with any of those things they simply have an issue with god being god and submitting to his rule and authority over their lives it, it's, they're not against me proclaiming the truth. They're against the one who wrote the truth. Regardless of circumstances, we all sin, and because of that, we wrestle with submitting to the lordship of God in different areas of our lives. It's this sin nature, and over and again, the Bible illustrates this through the life of Israel in the Old Testament, and this is where the staff comes from. Somebody say the staff. So in this moment, as Korah's coming against Moses, Moses says, okay, you want to see who's in charge? We'll let God decide. You get all your guys together, 
get a bunch of incense burners, and you stand before the Lord. Aaron and I will camp, we'll set up on the other side, and we'll let God decide who's going to win this thing. And God speaks to Moses and says, you need to tell everybody that's not actually with them to get out of the area because it's not going to be fun. So they stand up, people leave. There's about 200 or so men against Aaron and Moses, and they get to the showdown, and in a moment, God opens the ground and swallows all of the dissenters into the ground, and they die. And the ground closes over them. When God makes a decision, it's firm. God said, no, this is my man. These are my people. These are the leaders. And then Moses, in that moment, sends a word to all the other tribes. Get all of your elders, get all of your leaders together, and come meet in front of the tabernacle. In Numbers chapter 17, verses 8 through 11, it says, when he went into the tabernacle, what he had them do is he had them, all the leaders, grab their staves. E each of the elders, the tribal leaders, they had a special staff, kind of like you'd think of a coat of arms in ancient times where every family had a coat of arms and the, the kings or the leaders would wear that coat of arms when they went to battle. The elders, they had staves that signified what tribe they were from. And so they all brought their staves out. Moses collected them, including Aaron's, and brought them into the tabernacle overnight. And he said, the one that God chooses to be the leader, to make it clear for all time, will be the staff that buds in the morning. The, out of all of these dead sticks, the one that buds in the morning will be the one that God decides, that God chooses to be high priest for all time. Number 17, verses 8 through 11, says, When he, Moses, went into the tabernacle of the covenant the next day, he found that Aaron's staff, representing the tribe of Levi, had sprouted budded blossomed and produced ripe almonds i think that's hilarious god's like just in case you miss the fact that it sprouted it's gonna bud and if that's not enough it's also gonna produce fruit so that you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt god did this no miracle grow made this happen this was god overnight such an awesome thing and when Moses brought all the staves out from the presence of the Lord, he showed them to the people. Each man claimed his own staff. And the Lord said to Moses, Place Aaron's staff permanently before the Ark of the Covenant to serve as a warning to rebels. This should put an end to their complaints against me and prevent any further deaths. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him. So what happened? God had each man representing the tribes Put God to the test. But it was the one that blossomed that was the one God recognized as the leader of Israel. And why did he do it? He did it to put an end of rebellion and any future deaths. An end of rebellion and any future deaths. What's so powerful here that God's showing us in the great romance this story is that all these staves, right, they were made of what kind of wood? Dead wood. That each leader representing every tribe, the, the, the tribes of the nation, all these were dead branches, but the branch that was dead, but came back to life, that didn't just blossom, but bore fruit, would be the one recognized by God, not only to lead Israel, but prevent any future rebellion because of sin and any deaths as a result of the sinful nature. In Isaiah, the prophet prophesying of the coming Messiah, here's what he says in Isaiah 11 verse 1. He says, out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot, yes, a new what? A new branch bearing fruit. So the prophet's confirming this, this event with Aaron's staff. It was a foreshadow of the death and resurrection of Jesus that would put an end to rebellion, uh, bring in the adoption of sons, and raises up to everlasting life. Woo! Out of the tree that was dead, a new bearing fruit, shoot would grow. Jesus was born into a world enslaved by sin, a world that was conquered by death because of the rejection and rebellion of men who have a failure to submit to the lordship of God in their lives. 
But blessed be God that not only did he rise from the dead, but he is now where? Where's the staff? In the tabernacle, before the ark, before the very presence of God, where Jesus is forever interceding for those who would believe. First Corinthians fifteen twenty, Paul writes this: Now Christ is risen from the dead, and he's become the first fruits of them that slept. Not only is it amazing that Jesus rose from the dead, but because we're in Him, because we believe, one day we're going to rise from the dead. Jesus' staff was the first to blossom, but every one of our lives are going to blossom as well and bear fruit. Just like Aaron's rod was dead, Jesus joined humanity in death so that by rising from the dead, he could be the first fruit of among an amazing harvest of souls of those who would trust. And because the people knew, the people, as they're gathered together in front of the tabernacle, the people knew the command of God. They knew that anyone that wasn't approved of God, a priest, if they were to come around the tabernacle, they would be surely put to death. That wasn't their place. They had to stay in their place in the camp. Now all these leaders are around the camp for this event. So you can imagine, put yourself in their place. You just saw Korah and all of his men swallowed up in the earth because they were disobeying God. Now you're here in front of the tabernacle where you're not supposed to be. You can imagine a little fear rising up in the camp. In this moment, they begin to ask Moses, are we, are we going to die because we're not supposed to be here? This is not where we're supposed to be. Terror began to fill their hearts. But here's what Moses says in Numbers 18, 1 through 5. The Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons and your relatives from the tribe of Levi will be held responsible for any offenses related to the sanctuary. But you and your sons alone will be held responsible for violations connected with the priesthood. Bring your relatives of the tribe of Levi, your ancestral tribe, to assist you and your sons as you perform the sacred duties in front of the tabernacle. But as the Levites go about all their assigned duties at the tabernacle, they must be careful not to go near any of the sacred objects or the altar. If they do, both you and they will die. The Levites must join you in fulfilling their responsibilities for the care and maintenance of the tabernacle, but no unauthorized person may assist you. You yourselves must perform the sacred duties inside the sanctuary and at the altar. If you follow these instructions, the Lord's anger will never again blaze against the people of Israel. So here's what God says. As they're wondering, are we going to die now because we're not in the right place? We're too close. What God says is that the nation of Israel, if they unintentionally sin by going near the tabernacle, the priests will stand in their place for sins against the sanctuary, for sins against the tabernacle. But if among the priests, one of the the, the regular Levites go into the sanctuary where only the high priest and his sons are supposed to go, then both the high priest and that priest will die. It is the high priest who stands in the place of the other priests, and it is the priests who stand in place of the congregation at large. What this idea is communicating is that it's okay for one to take the place of another if they're appointed to the task. This is where the substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross, this idea of Jesus taking our place, comes in. In order for one to go free, something else must take their place. For one, because of sin, Jesus, our high priest, made it possible for us to go near God because he bore our sins on the cross. It says taking our place. If you mess up, it's okay. There's one to take your place. And I thanks be to God that he took on himself the punishment for our sin so our relationship with God could be restored. It's so powerful what is being revealed here in the stories. We're looking through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This brings us to the rock and the water. Somebody say the rock and the water. They leave this place, and it's not long. They're in the wilderness. They're in the desert. They get a little thirsty. It's like, we need some Gatorade up in here. You know, they're, they're getting a little thirsty, which is not new because they did this before. In Exodus 17, 6, after they cross the Red Sea, they start whining and complaining about water. In Exodus 17, it says, I will stand before you on the rock at Mount Sinai. Strike the rock and water will come gushing out. 
Then the people will be able to drink. So Moses struck the rock as he was told, and water gushed out as the elders looked on. So the first time they whined about water, God told Moses, go and strike the rock. And he did, and water comes gushing out, and it was able to give the whole community a drink. But in Numbers chapter 20, they get thirsty again. God gives them the instruction on how to bring water from the rock, but it's a little different this time. Numbers 20, verse beginning in verse 8. He says, You and Aaron must take the staff and assemble the entire community. Which staff? Aaron's staff. Not Moses' staff. It's Aaron's staff. As the people watch, speak to the rock over there. Somebody say, speak to the rock. So we're going to take Aaron's staff, and we're going to speak to the rock over there, and it will pour out its water. You'll provide enough water for the rock to satisfy the whole community and their livestock. So Moses did as he was told. He took the staff from the place where it was kept before the Lord, before the Ark of the Covenant. Then he and Aaron summoned the people to come together at the rock. Listen, you rebels, he shouted. Must we bring you water from this rock? Then Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice with the staff. Somebody say, struck the rock. That was a bad choice, Moses. But water gushed out. Here's the grace of God. So the entire community and their livestock stock drank to their fill. So the first time, God tells Moses, use your staff and strike the rock. The second time, take Aaron's staff, the resurrected staff, and speak to the rock. But Moses didn't obey. And because Moses didn't obey, God said, I'm sorry, you're not going to get into the promised land. And I'm like, God, do you know what you put Moses through up until this point? Like, he's been through some stuff. Couldn't you just accept all of that? But God's like, that's not my standard. My standard's not just a little bit obedience. It's complete obedience. Complete holiness. It's complete. And so God says, unfortunately, Moses, because you didn't obey... You can't get in. You can't get in. After all of that. Why? Because rather than speaking to the rock, you struck the rock. Why was God so harsh with Moses? Well, we can see why in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. As Paul explains what's really going on here. Look at what he, Paul writes to the church of Corinth. Talking about this time in the desert. What's he say? He says, all of them ate the same spiritual food what's he talking about he's talking about manna manna from heaven that god rained down they all ate the same spiritual food they all drank the same spiritual water right water from the rock for they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them and that rock was who that rock was christ so were they drinking from a physical rock? Yes, they were. But what they were really drinking from, the one, the water that was sustaining their lives, the one who was giving them the, the nutrition to, to survive in the wilderness, it was really the Lord Jesus Christ. It was really Jesus, our Savior. So this food they ate, it was manna. But you remember what Jesus said when he was tempted in the wilderness. He said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus is the bread of life. The manna represents the very spoken word of God that nourishes and strengthens the very body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Man shall not live by bread alone. Why was God so angry when they're complaining about manna? It's because of what manna represented. They were coming against the living word of God, the very Christ himself. So why was Moses kept from experience the promised land? What was the rock, the true rock, that actually gave them the water? It was Jesus Christ, our Lord. Look at verse 4. Again, in 1 Corinthians 10, it says they ate the same spiritual food, they drank the same spiritual rock, and that rock was Christ. When God said, I will come down and give them water from the rock, he said, I will come down upon the rock. He was either standing on the rock or he was in the rock. Either way, he was in or on the rock. And when the water came out, it didn't come from the rock. It came from Jesus himself. So think through this. As the rock traveled with them, it gave them not just physical but spiritual water. Jesus 
is the Messiah. In John chapter 4, verse 10, as he's talking to this woman at the well, he gives us a clue about this connection back to the Old Testament. Jesus is talking to her, and she's doubting about faith, doubting about God, doubting about who the Messiah is and what he would even do. And here's what Jesus says to her. He says, Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you're speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living what? I would give you living water. A few chapters later in John 7, Jesus is at a festival in Israel. And on the last day, it says he stands up at the climax of the festival. He stood and shouted to the crowds, Anyone who is thirsty may come to me for a drink. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare, rivers of living water will flow from his heart. And when he said living water, he was speaking of the Spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him, but the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. So Jesus is connecting back to this very moment when they're in the wilderness getting water from the rock, which is the, the revelation of the Spirit of God being poured out so not just physical thirst could be satisfied, but spiritual thirst could be satisfied. Eternal life could be given. How was Moses supposed to access this living water? The first time, what was he to do with the rock? He was to strike the rock. Somebody say strike the rock. The second time, he was to speak to the rock. Somebody say speak to the rock. He was to speak holding the resurrected staff. In Acts 2, 21, this is a picture of how God would bring salvation to the world. Moses, we call the first five books of the Old Testament, the law of Moses. Moses is a symbolic for the law. Moses used his staff to strike the rock, pour judgment out on the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. But after the rock was stricken, then the staff was resurrected. You only need to come and speak to the rock to receive living water. In Acts 2.21, it says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Acts 22.16 says, What are you waiting for? Get up! Be baptized! Have your sins washed away by what? Calling on the name of the Lord. The rock doesn't need to be stricken because once it's beaten, it is now flowing. So all we have to do is come and speak to receive. And God's not interested in us just drinking and getting a taste. He wants us immersed. That's what baptism is. It's immersed in the living water. Immersed. Moses struck the rock the second time instead of speaking to it. What does that symbolize? If you use the law to reject salvation you're going to miss the promise there's a transition between the old and the new testament and how you receive from the messiah in the old testament you followed the law which represented judgment on sin and revealed our sinful nature and in order for that to be satisfied something had to be stricken a sacrifice had to be given for sin to, f to be forgiven and life to flow but when the staff resurrected when jesus came back to life nothing else needed to be beaten down it was a once and for all sacrifice now you take the resurrection to the rock and you receive from the lord isaiah 53 4 the prophet says surely he's borne our griefs carried our sorrows yet did we esteem him stricken smitten of god and afflicted jesus already took the punishment for us why don't we follow the old testament laws why don't we avoid polyester and and skip over the shellfish at red lobster It's because jesus satisfied all that he took care of it we don't have to continue to make sacrifices to earn god's approval we simply receive of the lord by trusting in jesus christ as our lord and savior 1 John 5, 11, and 12. This is why this, this verse is important. It goes back to this moment when Moses struck the rock. It says, 
And this is what God has testified. He's given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, but whoever does not have the Son does not have life. You have to receive the Son to have eternal life. If you strike him after he's already been stricken, you are rejecting the very thing he wants to give you. You're rejecting it. What is that? It's a relationship with Almighty God. See, after this life is poured out, not just eternal life, but God gives them victory over their enemies. After this moment, they begin to move, and a few uh, different groups come out to attack them. The Canaanites come out to attack them. The Edomites uh, reroute them through the land, and they completely destroy their enemies. They overcome the Canaanites very easily. But here's where the serpent comes in. Somebody say the serpent. So we have the staff, the rock, the water, and the serpent. In Numbers 21, 4 through 8, they fall back into their old ways. They, get, they, got, they got their thirst quenched, but then they fell back into their old ways. It says, The people of Israel set out to Mount Hor, taking the road to the Red Sea, to go around the land of Edom. But the people grew impatient with the long journey. They began to speak against God and Moses. Like, come on, didn't you realize that was a bad idea? But no, they did it again. They say, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness? They complained. There's nothing to eat here, nothing to drink, and we ate this horrible manna. What are they saying? I don't care what you say. I don't care what you have to offer me. It's not enough. It's not enough. We're tired of you, Moses, the law. We're tired of you, God. We're tired of the manna, the living word. We're tired of what the Messiah is trying to give us through the rock in the water. We're tired of all that. We don't want that anymore. We want something else to satisfy us. So what does God do? Verse 6. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and many were bitten and died. That word poisonous is also translated from a word that means flaming or fiery. Some even uh, indicated, could indicate they were flying flaming serpents maybe some type of dinosaur dragon uh, not just simple snakes but in the original language this this flaming serpent uh, is connected with the idea of just the sting in their bite they would bite it would sting and it would bring most certain death and the identity of this creature is unknown but the word for serpent here in the old testament is the word seraph which is also connected not just to physical snakes but also spiritual beings called the seraphim. It's the same word. If you read Ezekiel chapter 1, you see Ezekiel's vision of God, and they have these four living creatures that come down with God. They're called seraphim. They're some kind of angelic spiritual being. These flaming creatures that, that they were wrestling with brought the sting of death, and anyone who they bit died. They, they terrorized the people. They were, many were dying, so they finally come to their senses and be like, we got to quit complaining about God. And they began to repent, and they came to Moses begging him to pray on their behalf to get rid of these snakes. And so, again, we know the events in Israel stand as a testimony to us for future events. It's all connected to Jesus. So what might be communicated here in this the story about these snakes terrorizing the nation of Israel? What's so powerful is that this flaming serpent or fiery serpent had death in its bite. The people died when they were bitten by the snakes. It's interesting that Satan is also called by another name in Scripture. It's the name Lucifer, which means shining one or light bearer. The word seraphim means, means glorious or blazing, flaming ones. But Satan, the word Lucifer, actually means shining one or light bearer. In Isaiah 14, he's um, revealed as this angelic being that stood before the ark of God where the the throne of God where the seraphim also are to this day in Genesis chapter 3 he's personified in the garden of Eden as what type of animal what type of animal was he in the garden it's a snake so here we have the light bringer the shining one who is also personified as a snake in Genesis chapter 3 in Hebrews chapter 2 we're told that the devil had the power of death that's his power. 
the t- power to bring death, and he wielded death across the whole earth because all have sinned. So in the imagery we have of the demonic realm and even Satan himself, we have a flaming, fiery serpent with the sting of death. Now when the people of God in Israel, they repent to the Lord because of the snakes, God comes to the rescue. In verse 7, it says, The people came to Moses and cried out, We've sinned by speaking against the Lord. They repented of their sin. They turned away from what they were doing and came back to the Lord. So Moses prayed for the people. And here's what God told him. He told him to do something very strange. He says, The Lord told them, Make a replica of the poisonous snake, attach it to a pole, and all who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. That's kind of weird. Like, you got all these snakes running around? Make you a snake, put it on a pole, and you'll be good. Right? So Moses does. He makes this bronze serpent, puts it on a pole. Have you ever wondered where the symbol from modern medicine comes from? Go ahead and throw that up on the screen. Have you seen that? Many equate this to the Greek god Hermes. This is his magic wand that he would go around and bring healing But many also believe it's much earlier than the Greek gods that it comes from ancient Mesopotamia. And I'm of the mind that the enemy likes to copy what God does. And so either in this scripture with the bronze serpent on the pole is the first instance of this where God does something miraculous and the enemies try to copy it or what God's doing in this moment, he's talking to a people who have come out of a pagan culture who are constantly battling with idolatry. What God am I going to serve? What God am I going to worship? And so God has them replicate an object of idolatry so that they have to face the reality of their sinfulness. This is what you keep turning away from me for. Before you can repent, before you can find healing, you have to face the reality of your sin. You have to face it. You can't dismiss it. You can't ignore it. You have to face it. And you still have to choose God anyways. You have to believe. So anyone who looked at this bronze serpent, God didn't get rid of the snakes. He simply healed the ones who were bitten. Come on now. What's significant about the staff and this pole is not that it was a magic weapon for healing. But Jesus in John chapter 3 is talking to Nicodemus, a teacher of religious law, and he clues us in on a mystery in John 13, 14, and 15. And if you've never watched the show The Chosen, that's my favorite show right now. And this episode is probably my favorite episode when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. But here's what Jesus says. As Moses lifted up the bronze snake on the pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Because of man's rebellion, rejection of God, his prophet, the law, the Messiah, snakes were unleashed to bring about suffering and death upon the people. And the power of this fiery serpent to kill would only be stopped when the bronze serpent was raised on the pole, when the serpent was raised up on the pole. That's when people would be healed. The raising of the snake on the pole was not the removal of the snakes. Jesus didn't turn Moses into the Pied Piper and lead all the snakes out of the camp. The snakes were still around. But there was a breaking of the power of the snakes to cause harm on those who believed God. And as the serpent in the wilderness's power was broken, as the bronze serpent was raised up by the law of Moses, the power of the devil was broken as Jesus was raised up on the cross through the power of the new covenant. The power of the serpent was broken when the pole was lifted up. Jesus in Luke 10 says something very powerful, something very important to the life of every believer in Jesus Christ to build your faith and help you see who you are in Christ. In Luke 10, verses 16 and 19, 
Jesus said to his disciples, anyone who accepts your message is accepting me. Anyone who rejects you is rejecting me. Anyone who rejects me is rejecting God who sent me. When the 72 disciples returned, they joyfully reported, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. And he says, yes, I told them I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I've given you authority over all the power of the enemy. Somebody say all the power of the enemy. I've given you authority over all the power of the enemy. You can walk among snakes and scorpions and crush them and nothing will injure you. What's the devil got against the people of God? This is a reference back to this place in the wilderness. Notice he includes scorpions along with the serpents in Deuteronomy 8.15. The writer of Deuteronomy, he says, don't forget that God led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its poisonous snakes and scorpions where it was so hot and dry as he gave you water from the rock. What Jesus is telling us is these snakes and scorpions, they may have been physical, but it was also a result of a spiritual reality. That their rejection of God, their rebellion against God, their inability for God to stay God in their life, for them to submit themselves to his will, unleashed the power of the enemy to terrorize and to torment them, both in the physical and spiritual reality. The writer of Deuteronomy tells us, do not forget this moment about the stinging things in the wilderness, but yet how God provided a way. In this passage in Luke, Luke chapter 10, Jesus is revealing this powerful thing. The fiery snakes and scorpions, the power they had to terrorize the people, they had the sting of death. They were overwhelming them now. But now, because a prophet like Moses has come, because he's revealed God to the world, and all who listen to his teachings will know the truth. They'll be filled with the bread of life, because faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. If you remain in the truth, it will make you free. Those who come to him will drink of the waters of living water. They'll partake in the Holy Spirit. And because Jesus was lifted up on the pole like the bronze serpent in the wilderness, he broke the power of the devil once and for all. And all who look to him will be healed through the power of his resurrection. And they'll not just have life and power to harm us. Now the enemy will be crushed under our feet once and for all. In Genesis 3.15, this is why this all matters. This is why the scripture from cover to cover matters. Because if you don't know what it says, you miss what it's telling you. In Genesis 3, when sin first entered into the world, God judged the serpent and he said, I will cause hostility between you and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, but you will strike his heel. What's he saying? He's saying there's going to come a time where a woman's going to have a son. And I'm going to bring hostility between those that come after him and those that come after you. But guess what? You're only going to slow him down. He's going to crush you. You're going to slow him down, but he's going to crush you. Beloved, the head of the enemy has been crushed. And you can walk freely among the serpents and scorpions, the stinging things that we pass by in the wilderness without fear. In the book of Mark, Jesus said we can even take up serpents and remove them from their place without fear. When we give the word in Jesus' name, the enemy has to go. And because of the staff, because of the rock, because of the water, and because of what God did to the serpent, the cry of our heart, 1 Corinthians 15, 55, we can proclaim boldly. Read this with me. O death, where is your victory? Oh, death. Where is it? We've come to the water. We've come to the fountain. We receive the Lord. You see, in this life, God doesn't promise to remove struggles and trials. All of us got stuff. The enemy's still out there. Still slithering around, trying to find ways to bring pain and suffering into the world. We all face serpents in the wilderness. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but praise be to God. When we find ourselves in a desperate situation, all we need to do 
is look upon the one who was lifted up. We don't need to strike the rock. We just need to speak to him. And out of his heart will come rivers of living water. He wants to fill you with hope today, beloved. He wants you to eat the manna, the bread of life. He wants you to drink deeply from the rivers of living water. The question is, is will you come and speak to the rock of your salvation? Will you come and bring him your needs? Jesus said, come all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are you thirsty in this world where there is no water? Come and drink of the Lord. Lay your burdens down. Find your victory in Jesus. Don't look at the serpent. Look at the one who was lifted up. Fix your gaze on the author and finisher of our faith. What are you struggling with today? See, the invitation to you today is to come. Come and speak to the rock. Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes as we go into a time of response. Lord Jesus, we thank you that these just aren't stories. This is a record of your glorious work and a testimony of how you're pursuing every one of our hearts. And God, I just pray that everyone here today would be filled with your love, God, that we thank you, God, that Jesus was beaten and bruised on our behalf. We celebrate the Lord's Supper to remember his death, that the rock was already stricken. The water, his precious blood has already flowed out. And today, to get a drink, we just merely need to call on your name. So God, we're calling on you. God, I'm calling on you right now to speak into the lives of everyone here. Those who are doubting, those that are hurting, those who are in need, those who need healing, those who need comfort, those who need encouragement. God, those who are feeling the sting of the enemy in their life, God, I pray that the healing power of Christ would flow in Jesus' name. Holy Spirit, fill this place. Come and rest on us today. Lord, speak into our lives, into our very hearts, in Jesus' name. So we go into a time of response. If there's something on your heart you're struggling with, battling with, our prayer team is down front. We want to pray over you. Come and speak to the rock. If you need healing, we want to pray for you. Come and speak to the rock. Come and receive of the Lord. Whatever's going on, whatever God is speaking to your heart, you respond to him today as we stand and as we worship the Lord. Let's all stand together. From all of us at Vertical Life Church, we want to say thank you for listening. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to www.blchurch.tv forward slash give. Thank you and God bless.